Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. expecting this morning that you are going to remember everything I told you two weeks ago about Revelation 17, 
And then last week, we were rather rudely interrupted in our revelation study by a couple of baptisms. And then next week, as Jeff mentioned, Greg Wren will be here. Jeff referred to Greg Wren as my twin. That's Greg's joke. In fact, he refers to Saints Chapel there in Mesquite, Texas, as GCA West, because we are so very similar. He is the pastor and overseer of the Sovereign Grace Bible Conference that occurs in Texas each year, that I used to drive to year by year by year before the COVID thing happened. And then I wasn't able to go this year. So he's going to be here next week. So please be here and listen to Elder Wren. Two weeks ago, we read through chapter 17 of the book of Revelation. And we concentrated on Babylon, Babylon historically, Babylon religiously and spiritually, Babylon as a market center. And so we just wanted to establish Babylon as a concept, and we went through several of the passages in the Bible that make reference to Babylon, just so you could get a sense of how the Bible uses Babylon, references Babylon. Today we're going to dig into the details of Revelation 17 and try very hard not to get lost in the weeds. So if at any point I lose anybody, just throw up a flare and we'll go back and see if we can be some help. Now I will also say that I'm going to have to circumlocute some of the language here for the sake of the fact that there are kids in the room who probably shouldn't go home saying some of the things that I'm going to avoid saying this morning. And yet the language of the Bible makes reference to women of ill repute. I should also say that I have been impressed through our 21 years here at GCA by the number of people who just traveling through the country come by to visit little GCA. It astounds me. It amazes me. It is part of the fruit of the fact that we've been on the internet for all these years, that we have friends who drop in and visit with us. And Luke, thank you for making the effort to come by and see us this morning. It's, it's awfully impressive. It's good to know that we have friends out there. And it's nice when our digital friends become analog friends. So that's, that's. Revelation 17, everybody there? Yep. All right, good. Let's read the first verse. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. So right away, that sounds very spiritual, a harlot sitting on many waters. Fortunately for us, the Bible interprets all that for us. We don't have to do any fancy exegetical work to understand exactly what's being said. Because in this same chapter, 
look down at verse 15. And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits, oh good, he's going to interpret for us and tell us exactly what these symbols mean. The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. Okay, good. Now we know what the waters represent. The waters represent all the peoples of the earth. There is also going to be judgment on this great harlot, but you will notice where she sits. She sits over all the nations, all the peoples, all the tongues, all the multitudes and nations on planet earth. She has a very universal scope in her influence on planet earth. And she's falling under the judgment of God. That should tell you something very important, which is the vast majority of the politics of this world, the vast majority of the religion of this world, the vast majority of the economic systems of this world are going to fall under the judgment of God, meaning that they are not righteous, they are not holy. It's easy for us these days to kind of look at the world and say, you know, I don't belong here. This world is not my home. I like that song. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Sometimes it feels like we're kind of stuck here, though. And we look at the world and say, this, this just cannot be the final end of it because there's just too much wickedness. There's too much evil. There's too much confusion. It's good to know that God has already said in advance that he is going to judge the systems of this world, especially because the systems of this world have so encroached on the church. The systems of this world have so encroached on everything that is righteous and holy. Everything that is just and fair has been corrupted by this world. And so the first verse of this chapter tells us that judgment is coming to this entire system which is summed up as a harlot. This is the word that I am going to talk about carefully. Circumlocute where I can. All the way through the Old Testament, whenever Israel would go chase after foreign gods, whenever they would worship anyone else except Yahweh, God would refer to them as an erring wife. And that relationship is purposeful on God's part. There is no more intimate relationship than a husband and a wife. And in fact, the Bible says, Old and New Testament, that in that marriage union, the two become one. Okay, so God chose a people, called a people, redeemed a people to himself, and then they go off and cheat on him. I don't know. I hope you've never had that experience in your life, but you can only imagine how painful that would be to find out that the person you're married to has decided that they love somebody else. Well, that's the relationship that God chose on purpose to try to describe 
the emotional damage that is done to the relationship between him and his people when they go off chasing other gods, when they go worship anything other than him, when they go make their own idols and bow themselves down to it, when they find value that is more valuable than him in anything else, he says that is akin to prostitution. That's akin to a woman becoming a harlot. And that is why this whole Babylonian system is referred to in the book of Revelation in that language, that she is a harlot that sits on all the waters, that she is the one who is over all the nations, all the peoples, all the tongues, because the world has become so very corrupt that it is acting in such a way that it is in direct opposition to godliness and to covenant godliness like marriage. So does that give you some kind of idea how bad the world looks to God? You can see why he's going to judge the great harlot. Look back at chapter 14 for just a moment. Chapter 14, verse 8. There you're going to see the exact same language. It shouldn't be a surprise when we see it in chapter 17. Another angel, a second one, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. If they had just stopped there with no description, it would have been left up to us to decide whether Babylon had any value or not. But the angel describes Babylon this way. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. You're going to see that word again in chapter 17, this immorality. It means the basest, most fleshly immorality. And here Babylon is given responsibility for making all of the nations get drunk on the wine of her illicit immorality. Gives you some idea what God thinks of the Babylonian system which we are told is over all nations, all tongues, all peoples. That's a pretty accurate description of this world we live in, isn't it? Yes, it is. I'll show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. And those who dwell on the earth, I've told you before that that phrase, and I, I really prefer the Greek phrase, the Greek phrase is the earth dwellers. They are described, it is a characteristic of theirs, that they are of the earth, they are of the dirt, they are of the planet. They're not of God, they're not of heaven, they're of the earth. And throughout the book of Revelation, John keeps contrasting the earth dwellers with those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life since before the foundation of the world. And he's going to do that again in this chapter. All of humanity is divided up into one of two categories. You are either considered one who has their name written down in the Lamb's Book of Life since before the foundation of the world, or you're an earth dweller. And all the descriptions of the earth dwellers are never good. It's never the earth dwellers. What fine people. 
It's never the earth dwellers up, up, up with people. That, that never happens. The earth dwellers are always denounced in the Bible. So the kings of the earth are committing these acts of immorality along with those who are the earth dwellers. And why do they act like that? Because they were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. So the immorality of this planet, which we would all agree exists, the Bible says that Babylon is the cause of it. It all stems from Babylon and then reaches out to all other nations, to all other peoples, to all other tongues. You can see why God would want to judge her. Verse 3, we're going to bump into the word blasphemy. We're not even three verses into this chapter yet, and it's really tough, dark language. He carried me away in the spirit. Actually, in the Greek, it's carried me away in spirit. In other words, he's having a vision at this moment. And he carried me away in spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names. Do you know what the word blasphemy means? It's vilification, usually against God. It's evil speaking. It's railing against God. All you have to do is think about Jesus dealing with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That was defined by those of the Pharisees who were saying that Jesus was doing miracles because of the power of Beelzebub. He was doing it by Satan. And that was a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, that's not going to be forgiven now, and it's not going to be forgiven in this age, and it's not going to be forgiven in the age to come. That's how serious this blasphemy thing is. Well, turns out that this woman is sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. That should all sound very familiar to you, because ever since Daniel, we have been looking at these combinations of tens and sevens. Take a look at verses 9 and 10 in this exact same chapter, and it's going to interpret it for us. We don't have to interpret it at all. Verse 9 of chapter 17 says, Here is the mind that has wisdom. In other words, since this is symbolic, and since you're going to need to understand what the symbol means, it's going to take some wisdom to understand it. And then it's interpreted for us. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. This is not seven hills. This is not a reference to Rome. Mountains in the Old Testament signify power, signify nations. And in fact, in the very next verse, that's exactly what it's going to say. So there's no ambiguity here about what these heads and horns represent. Here is the mind that has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. Okay, so now we know that it can't be Rome. It can't be any particular city. It is representative 
of a succession of kings, and then we're told five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. Okay, what does that mean? Well, as John was writing this down, 92, 96 AD, during Domitian's reign, during the reign of Rome, during that time period, in this succession of kings, there was one, and he apparently was the sixth, because five have fallen, one is, and one hasn't come yet. Okay, now when we were reading through Daniel, we saw that there are seven nations in total that have ever conquered and ruled over Israel. Does anybody remember what they are? Egypt is the very first. Then comes Assyria. And then comes Babylon. And then comes Medo-Persia. Then comes Greece. How many is that? I'm holding up five fingers. You should be able to tell the folks on the internet my hand was no help to them at all. That's five. As John is writing, those five have already passed off the scene of history. They have already fallen. One is. What's the one that is at that moment when John's writing? Rome. Rome. That's six. And then there is one yet to come. And when he comes, he must remain for a little while. There is nothing in all of human history that you can point to where you can say that's the seventh kingdom. That simply has not happened yet. Especially considering if John is writing 92-96 AD during the reign of Domitian, just like the church historians tell us, if that is true, then Jerusalem has already fallen and Israel has not become a nation again till 1948. So since 1948, what's the other kingdom that is currently ruling over Israel? Doesn't exist. So this seventh kingdom that rules over Israel and Jerusalem doesn't exist, but when he does, he's going to have a very short reign. He's only going to last a little while. Okay, so that helps us understand because the text tells us what these seven heads are. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. So Babylon gets credit. Babylon is the spiritual head over these seven nations that have ever ruled over God's people, Israel, who have ever been in opposition to God's plan. And they are seven kings. Five are already gone. One currently is. The other has not yet come. Have I lost anybody yet? It's right there in the text. You just have to let the text tell you what it means. Okay, so let's go back up to verse 2. So the kings of the earth have committed these acts of immorality. And those who dwell on the earth, the earth dwellers, are made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, who in a moment we're going to know is the dragon, that's Satan. And he was full of these blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. Now, I mentioned a moment ago 
that we could look at verse 9 and 10 to understand these sevens. But if you look down at verse 12, it's going to tell us about the ten horns. Verse 12 says, And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom. Oh, that's that one to come. They are ten kings, and they have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for a short period, for one hour. This, by the way, is one of those verses that I like to challenge my post-mill and ah-mill friends with. And they are friends, but the debates get rigorous. This is one that they just simply cannot explain away and cannot spiritualize sufficiently to make it fit the context. Because these ten horns are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom during John's time. Now again, if John is writing 92, 96 AD, it's not going to be sufficient to say, well, that's a series of Roman Caesars. Regardless of which Caesars you think it is, it would have to be after Domitian, 10 Caesars. Or let's give them the benefit of the doubt and let's early date the book of Revelation with them. Let's say, okay, John's writing during the time of Nero. He's not, but let's give them that. It's still impossible to come up with 10 Caesars that fit this description because they all exist and have kingdoms contemporaneous with one another. They're not a succession of one after the other, after the other, after the other. All 10 of them receive a kingdom at the same time and exist for the same period of time. So it's not sufficient to say that they are Roman Caesars, and especially if uh, Polycarp was right, and especially if John is on the Isle of Patmos during the reign of Domitian, 92, 96 AD, then there's no way to say that these 10 kings have happened yet. Would anybody like to offer a guess for these 10 kings? Because I've yet to hear anybody successfully say who these 10 kings are. And do you know why we don't know who these 10 kings are? Hasn't happened yet. I can identify them with great accuracy the minute they're on the planet. As soon as it happens, we're all going to be able to go, oh, there they are. That's that. But it hasn't happened yet, and there's no way to say that it has. Because what we know from verse 10 is that there are going to be a succession of seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. When he does come, he has to remain for a short time. And the beast, which was and is not, is himself also an eighth. We'll talk about that later. He's one of the seven. And he goes into destruction. And the ten kings which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom. But they receive authority as kings with the beast for a short time, for one hour. You put all those pieces together, it's impossible to believe that John was writing from an all-mill or a post-mill perspective. Okay, back to verse 3. He, the angel, carried me away in spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads 
and 10 horns. That should sound really, really familiar to you. I'm not going to go through all the Daniel stuff. Hopefully, I can just say it in shorthand to you and remind you, hopefully you know enough of this material that I don't have to go into it in any depth. But Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Nebuchadnezzar didn't know the dream. Nebuchadnezzar called all his magicians and soothsayers and said, tell me the dream and tell me the interpretation of it. They said, no king has ever asked for anything like that. He says, you tell me my dream or I'm going to chop your head off. And so they beg for time. They go to Daniel. Daniel says, I'll go pray to God. He'll tell me. And, of course, Nebuchadnezzar very wisely is saying, you got to tell me the dream because you can come and tell me any interpretation at all, and I'll have no idea whether it's true. I need to know that you know both the dream and the interpretation. So he was going for accuracy. Daniel shows up and says, in your dream, you saw a giant statue. Had a head of gold. Had shoulders, arms of silver had belly and sides of brass, had legs of iron, and had toes of iron and clay. How many toes are there? Ten. Ten. What a surprise. We're back to this ten-toed thing. But then he interprets the dream and tells us what that whole statue represents. And it was the kingdoms of the Middle East that were ever going to oppress Israel, starting with the head of gold, which Daniel says, that's you, Nebuchadnezzar. The Babylonian kingdom, that's the head of gold. And then as he works his way down the statue, it becomes inferior metals, gold down to silver, down to brass, and then finally down to iron and clay. And so what do all of these symbols represent? Kingdoms. He even says so. Then continuing in the book of Daniel, he even names the Medo-Persians, and then he names the Grecians. So we know from the book of Daniel exactly what the symbol was. It was all about nations, and it ends in ten toes. So what do the ten toes represent? Nations. Has to be nations. Has to be kingdoms. And then what do we see in the book of Revelation? Same thing. Ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who will for a very short time. So then after Nebuchadnezzar's statue, starting in Daniel 7, Daniel sees another vision. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast Dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth, and it devoured, and it crushed, and it trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had, big surprise, ten horns. And then it gets interpreted for us. Daniel 7, starting in verse 20, and the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up and before whom the three of them fell, namely that horn, which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, and which was larger than all its associates. You jump down to verse 24, and it says, As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them. He'll be different from the previous ones, and he'll subdue three kings. That's exactly what we just read out of the book of Revelation, that there are ten horns, they are ten kings, and then there is this one who rises up in the book of Revelation. He's referred to as an eighth, 
and then he's going to go into perdition, he's going to go into destruction, and what we're going to find out both in Daniel and in Revelation is that the ten kings give their power to that king, that little horn. All I'm going for here, even if you don't remember all of the details, all I'm going for here is that Daniel and Revelation say the exact same thing. So it's not difficult to understand the book of Revelation if you just know your Old Testament. You just line up the pieces, and not only does Revelation interpret itself, but the book of Daniel will help you to understand the book of Revelation. And they are saying the same thing over and over again, which is there is a succession of kingdoms that have ever ruled over Israel, and there is one yet in human history that simply has not occurred. And the way you'll be able to identify it is that it's going to be a loose amalgam of 10 kings, 10 nations, who end up giving their authority and their power to the beast, nicknamed the Antichrist, when he comes on the scene. And why are they going to do that? Because he's going to be spiritually possessed by the dragon himself. Have I lost anybody yet? Is that what the Bible says? Okay, so you got to ask yourself, do I believe the Bible? If you believe the Bible, that's what the Bible says. And then you either have to say, well, it said it, and it interpreted it, and it laid it out several times, Old and New Testament, or you got to get real busy spiritualizing all of that to make it go away. I prefer to stand toe-to-toe with it and say, well, that's what it says. And therefore, given the fact that God has this amazing batting average on human history, and given the fact that all of the prophecies of the Old Testament have come true the way they were described, that leads me to believe that these prophecies of the New Testament are also going to occur exactly the way they are described. And if that's not the way they're going to occur, then somebody has to come along with superior knowledge and superior authority over the Bible and tell us why it doesn't mean what it says. And you're not up to that job. I didn't mean to look right at you, Elizabeth, when I said that, but you, Elizabeth, are not up to that job. I just want you to know that. (laughs) Back in Revelation 12, 3, we already saw this. It said, Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his head were seven diadems. We've seen this same imagery exactly. It keeps coming up. Revelation 13, very first verse. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. And then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, ten crowns, making him kings. And on his heads there were blasphemous names. So time and time again, this imagery keeps coming up in the book of Revelation. It is defined for us in the book of Daniel. We can really only come to one conclusion. Chapter 17, verse 3. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The image being all of those successive kingdoms 
We're all under the influence of Babylon. Babylon is under the influence of Satan himself, the prince of the power of the air, the spiritual wickedness in high places, the darkness of the rulers of this world. All the stuff that Paul said, we've, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Paul said we wrestle against principalities and powers. Cosmocratos, the rulers of the darkness of this world, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. That's what's being described here and summed up as Babylon. And that's the influence that it has had on the entire world. That woman representing Babylon, that woman who is sitting on all the waters over all the nations, kings, tongues, people groups, that woman who is sitting on the blasphemous beast with its seven heads and its ten horns, that woman is clothed in purple and scarlet. Those are colors that are normally reserved for kings and queens. That's for royalty, showing that she is ruling over the nations of the world. And she's rich, she's filthy rich, she's stupid rich, and she is adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, and she has in her hand a golden cup. Okay, so if you see anybody adorned in gold and diamonds and precious stones, your first thought is not, well, there's an impoverished person. John is going to lengths here in order to say she's very wealthy. It is the wealth of this world that she controls that is part of the influence that she holds over the world, which is why when we get to chapter 18 and we see God destroying the buying, selling, and trading of this planet, that is part of the defeat of the fall of Babylon is because wealth is part and parcel of her influence on the world. The woman is clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. And she has in her hand a cup full of abominations. So as good as she looks, what's she full of? She's got a cup full of abominations and the unclean things of her pornography. So John has gone to great lengths to say, really good looking, really wealthy, really attractive, really influential, really evil. The same way that Paul said that it's no surprise that the ministers of Satan come looking like angels of light. Because he said Satan himself comes like an angel of light. I have said this so many times through the years. Satan is not going to show up in your bedroom looking like the character from Deviled Ham with goat hooves and horns and a pitchfork going, yeah, uh-uh. do bad stuff. Don't brush your teeth. You know, talk back to your mom. You know, that, that's not what Satan looks Satan's going to look attractive and is going to attract you with all the wealth and the stuff of this world. That is the motivation with which Satan attracts the earth dwellers. Because not only does she have in her right hand 
this golden cup that is full of abominations and the unclean things of her immorality, but on her forehead a name is written, a mystery, Babylon the Great. Not just a harlot, but the mother of harlots and the mother of the abominations of the earth. Wow, what a description. Now I'm going to show my age. If you're reading in the King James, you will notice that the word mystery is included as part of the title, which is where we get the phraseology Mystery Babylon. I think the NASB is correct in saying that what is written is a mystery, and what is written is the identifier Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and of the abominations of the earth. Here's the part where I show how old I am. I've been alive long enough that I remember the days when the mitre that the Pope used to wear, do you remember the word that was written on it? Mystery. And then apparently one day, somebody said, you know, that's the same thing that's written on the forehead of the Babylonian harlot. We might want, and it's not there anymore. Apparently, he got himself a new fish hat. And so it's not there. Mystery, that word, has been the subject of all kinds of debate about whether it should be included in the title, Mystery Babylon the Great, or whether what is written is in itself a mystery. Now, that Greek word mysterion means previously unrevealed truth. So that's why I say that it is descriptive of the fact that she is entitled as Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. That is a detail that is not revealed to us until the book of Revelation. Therefore, it does qualify as a mystery. That's why I agree with the NASB translators. Have I lost anybody yet? I know I'm down in the weeds here. I just want to make sure that at no point does anybody go, you know, football starts soon, and Jim is carrying on right now, and maybe he could clam up and we could go see kickoff. Upon her forehead is a name written. It's a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Okay, so... Harlotry is identified all the way through the Bible as worship of anything other than God. The abominations are speaking ill of God and his spirit, saying terrible things, speaking against righteousness and holiness. And those abominations belong here to the earth dwellers. But Who is the progenitor of all of that, according to this verse? Babylon is the mother of it. She gave birth to it. She brought it about. She is responsible for all the uncleanness, for all the filth, for all the harlotry, for all the false worship, for all of the abominable actions of human beings, for all of their uncleanness and their immorality, She is the mother of all of it. So now you see the contrast 
between godly righteousness and the righteousness that is imputed to the saints so that we can be called the holy ones. We are the separate ones who God has chosen to himself. And then there is the world of the earth dwellers. And they don't have God. Instead, their mother is Babylon, who is described with this kind of just horrendous language. And the contrast is huge. Hopefully, that will help us understand why God does actually finally pour out his wrath, his vengeance against Babylon. Verse 6. And I saw the woman, and among all her abominations, she was also drunk. But what was she drunk with? She was drunk with the blood of the saints. I just mentioned the saints, the holy ones. The, that word, the hagias, is the same word for holy. Just translated saints because it's referring to individual people who God has set apart for his own purposes, who he has sanctified, and so we are the holy ones. She is responsible for the death of all the holy ones and has made herself drunk on the blood of the saints. Now, there's a couple ways you can read that. You can say, well, that's referring specifically to the first portion of Daniel's 70th week, especially the moment when uh, the beast insists that everybody take the mark of the beast, worship his image, and if they don't, they get killed. You can say that that's a reference to that. Or you can expand it and say, ever since the church has existed, all the saints, all the martyrs, through all time, she is responsible for the fact that they have been killed. Either way that you read it, what you have is Babylon being responsible for such opposition against the saints of God, whether that's Israel in the Old Testament or whether that's the church in the New Testament, Babylon gets the credit for the death the destruction, the bloodshed of all those holy ones of God who have ever died here on earth. And she's drunk on it. She loves it. She consumes it. It's part of her character. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses. I've told you before that's martyrs, the Greek word from which we get martyrs the people who actually did die because of their testimony of Christ or their testimony and faith in God. So the blood of the holy ones, the blood of the martyrs, the witnesses of Jesus. And when I saw her, John said, I wondered greatly. <laughs> yeah. He's looking at it, marveling at it, wondering at it. What can this possibly mean? That's why the angel says, let me tell you what this means. So that there's no question about it. There's no ambiguity about it. Verse 7, and the angel said to me, why do you wonder? I shall tell you the mystery. There's that word again. I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw, that beast she was riding on, very, very important that all the way book, 
that all the way back in the book of Daniel, or all the way book in the back of Daniel, I don't care, pick one. All the way back in the book of Daniel, Daniel's vision was a succession of beasts. But when he got to the beast that produced the ten-toed kingdom, with the ten horns and the ten crowns, when he got there, he didn't describe the beast. And so theologians have referred to that beast as the nondescript beast. Here, this is a beast again, perfectly in keeping with Daniel's vision, again making the connection to everything that Daniel had seen that everyth- and everything that Daniel had predicted. Why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. Same description as in the book of Daniel. The beast that you saw, really important. Hang on to this. Really, really important. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go into destruction. So when John is writing this, 92, 96 AD, sitting on the Isle of Patmos, when he's writing this and he's seeing all this and he's writing it down, there is this beast that the woman is riding on, and as John is attempting to identify the beast, the angel says, that beast used to be. He was here on the planet. He was here active on the planet, but at this very moment, he's not. And why isn't he? Because he's in the abyss. But he's going to come out of the abyss, and he's going to go into perdition, and we know what that's going to look like. He's going to establish the ten-toed, ten-horn, ten-crown kingdom. And then he's going to take the authority over those ten nations. So who is that? Well, according to the book of Daniel, are you tired of hearing me say the Daniel thing yet? Okay, so Daniel is praying to God and he is confessing the sins of Israel to God. Daniel is aware, because he has read the book of Jeremiah, he's aware that Judah is only going to be in Babylon for 70 years. Those 70 years are coming toward a close. Daniel is praying to God that God will just keep his word. Just do what you said you were going to do. Make it 70 years. An angel hears him pray the day he starts praying that. It takes the angel 21 days to get to Daniel. And that's when we hear about Daniel's 70th week. Because the angel says, not only is it going to be 70 years, but I'm going to tell you the next 77s as concerns your people, Daniel, and your city, Jerusalem. So the prophecy is very specific. It's about Jerusalem. It's about Judah. It's about Israel. But it took the angel 21 days to get there. And when he got there, he even said to Daniel, I was withstood by the prince of Persia. Was he withstood by Cyrus? Was Cyrus out there boxing with him? No, of course not. Cyrus was the king of Persia at that time, but Cyrus is one of this succession of kings who are demonically controlled, 
And that is why they came against God's holy people. And so, because he was prevented by the prince of Persia, the guardian, the angel of your people, Michael, he came and fought with me, and he's holding the prince of Persia at bay so that I could get to you and tell you this prophecy. That's all that spiritual wickedness in high places stuff. Angelic, demonic battles in the heavenlies that we know nothing about. And yet it's declared in the Bible, 21 days, this war was going on between an angel of God and the power that ruled Persia. But then, the whole point of this is, then the angel says, I'm going to go back. Michael and I are going to beat up on the prince of Persia. And lo, the prince of Grecia comes. What does that mean? It means when we go and take care of this demonic force, another one is going to sweep into the vacuum. And historians to this very day are at a loss to understand how it is that Alexander the Great, at his very young age, managed to conquer so much of the Middle East, so much of Europe, and then died in his early 30s outside the gates of Babylon, upset because there were no more worlds to conquer. Okay, so there's this succession of demonic powers that are controlling these kings, the very same kings who ever oppressed God's people, Israel. During Rome, who is the equivalent to Nebuchadnezzar or Cyrus or Alexander the Great? Who's the equivalent in Rome? Emperor. Generally emperor, yeah, but who? Which one? Those others are all named in the Bible. None in Rome. Why? Because the beast that you saw was, is not, as John is writing during Rome, and is going to come again. So whatever that power was that allowed those former kingdoms to conquer Israel the way they did, that power is coming again. And Israel is going to be conquered again. You understand all that? Do you get the big sweep of human history? God is still sovereignly in control of all that and explaining to us that the world forces that have ever come against his people are demonic forces, demonically driven and driven by the power that is wrapped up in Babylon. Have I lost anybody yet? Am I boring you? No. I find this stuff fascinating. That's all I'm saying. The angel said to me, why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and ten horns. The beast that you saw was, is not, and is about to come up out of the abyss and go into destruction. And the earth dwellers will wonder at the beast. And then notice the contrast. Who are the earth dwellers? Those whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Big distinction. There's those who are chosen by God and there's the earth dwellers. 
Who are going to wonder at the beast when he comes on the scene? The earth dwellers. They are going to see the beast that he was and that he is not and that he will come. Okay, that's twice now we've been told this very important distinctive of the beast that he was, that he currently is not, and that he's going to come. Would anybody like to venture a guess if you're going to say he's already been here? Who is he? Who was he? There were people who during Hitler's time said, oh, it's Hitler. But then where were the ten kings? It just hasn't happened yet. So we ourselves are sitting in a period of time in Earth's history where this demonic beast, this horrific beast, used to be, is currently under the control of the angels who put him in the abyss, and then he's going to come up out of the abyss again, and he's going to go out and conquer and cause all kinds of destruction. Again, all I'm saying, if you don't remember these details, be really, really happy God's on your side. Because the whole world is currently under the sway of Babylon and is one day going to fall under the influence of this demonic beast. And all of the earth dwellers are going to be powerless to resist. And in fact, they're going to wonder at him and marvel at him when they see that beast that he was and that he is not and that he's going to come again. You have God on your side. You have the Spirit of God inside you. Your names are written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. God is in the enterprise of saving people and saving them not just from themselves and from their sin, but saving them from the horror of what is coming. Bless God. Praise God. If God be for you, who can be against you? Even this beast can't be against you. Because you are counted among those who have their names written down in the Lamb's Book of Life since before the foundation of the world. I'm fighting against the clock. i got to pick up the pace. Let's wrap it up this morning. Here is the mind that has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And they are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. Notice that the one king is during the time that that beast is not. Which is why I say Rome had a succession of Caesars, but none of them had the same demonic influence that Alexander had, or that Cyrus had, or that Nebuchadnezzar had. They are seven kings, five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. When he comes, he must remain a little while. Okay, so what that's describing is there are going to be ten kings who are going to have ten kingdoms for a short period of time. Then the beast himself is going to come on the scene, and then the dragon, Satan himself, is going to take him over, which is why he is referred to as one of the seven. He's even an eighth, though, because he is so much more than just one of the ten kings. Did that sentence make sense? Everybody follow that? Here's how it's described. The beast which was and is not is himself an eighth. Okay, that helps. Because we know there's a succession of seven kingdoms that have ever controlled God's people Israel. 
there is going to be a seventh. He hasn't come yet. When he does come, he's going to be demonically possessed by the beast himself. That beast who was and is not, who's going to come up out of the abyss, is going to possess that political ruler, making him an eighth because he is both the beast and he is the person, the Antichrist, the ruler. And he is one of the seven. He is that succession of seven kingdoms. And he goes into destruction. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings which have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings from the beast for one hour. And they all have one purpose, and they give their power and all their authority to the beast. Next week, well, two weeks from now, we'll start at verse 14, which starts with, and they wage war against the lamb. Where in human history have there been ten kings who gave all their authority to one central king so that there are ten kingdoms, ten nations, who all agree to give their authority to one single king who has power over all of them. Where has that happened? Hasn't happened. Where is that beast that used to be, that isn't, that is to come? We can't identify him yet. And so these things are yet to come. I say, even if you don't get the details, if you get a feel for the fact that there is this terrible time called a tribulation on earth such as never was or ever would be again, you don't want to be part of that. As we look into the details and the description, you can get some sense of how bad it is and the only way to not participate with the world dwellers is Christ. And that's the importance of Christ. Christ is not here to give you a bigger car, bigger house, better children. Everybody's up for the better children thing. <laughs> Christ is not here to make you healthy, wealthy. That's not what Christ is about. Christ is the absolute Superior, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He is the deliverer. He is the Savior. He is essential to your eternity, and He is the Redeemer who will keep you from all the terrible stuff that we're reading in the book of Revelation. You need Christ. Amen. Run to Christ. Have I confused anybody at all this morning? Did it all make sense? Yes. The book of Revelation made sense. And Revelation 17, as you just saw, is one of the most debated, difficult, supposedly, passages in all of Revelation. And this morning, every one of you said, oh, I get it. And why do you get it? Because we just compared scripture to scripture, Bible to Bible, and the Bible interprets itself. And it tells one story over and over again. It's not that hard. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. 
And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.